Jean Ribot was 45 the day he died. He was thousands of miles away from his home in France on the other side of the world, dying at the hands of his nation's mortal enemies, Spain. He had been part of France's big push for land. It was the 1500s. In the previous few decades, the three European colonizer powerhouses of England, France, and Spain were planting their flags literally in the quote-unquote New World, the land that would soon be North America. Jean Ribot had one of the most unfortunate fates to befall the various people who attempted to settle these lands of the New World. That is because Jean Ribot made the perilous mistake of arriving a little too late. For that, he would die, alongside a few hundred of his countrymen. A few hundred Frenchmen would die along what is now called the Matanzas River, named for their deaths at the hands of the Spaniards. At the exact same time of Jean Ribot's death, the city of St. Augustine was officially formed. The city was born in September of 1565 and is widely considered to be the first official, still-standing European settlement in North America. Jean Ribot would die not far from that brand new city around that exact same time. With his death, the French attempt to colonize the peninsula of Florida was over. To call it a failure doesn't quite come close enough to painting the whole picture. To put it mildly, it was a massacre. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is the season finale of our spring season, and today we're going to wrap it up with a story that takes us back to the beginning. We've discussed Spain's successful claim to the peninsula that we call home, but we've not spent nearly enough time on France's feudal attempts to bring us into their kingdom. Jean Ribot is at the center of that mission and the cause of its eventual demise. Yesterday was the anniversary of his first arrival to the Sunshine State 460 years ago, on May 1st, the beginning of the end for France's attempt to establish a foothold here in Florida. Things have been so busy on my end, I've mentioned it a few times, but I haven't gotten a chance to visit Fort Caroline, which is an essential location in the story. You're going to hear a lot about it, but I was able to, at last... Just two days ago, on Saturday, it was a beautiful sunny day and Fort Caroline was filled with people. It is a park that is actually run by the National Park Service. It is the Fort Caroline National Memorial. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but it is actually sort of three separate locations that are all connected. One of them is the Spanish Pond, another is the Rabot Monument, and the third is Fort Caroline. Now, all of these are within an area called the Tamukuin Ecological and Historic Preserve. It is an amazing place that covers acres of land and historical locations all along this northeastern corner of Florida. We're going to come back and visit it a lot because I, I learned a lot about this area while I was visiting, but for now we're focusing on the lowermost section of this preserve, which is all dedicated to Fort Caroline. I wore my microphone there, so I'll take you a little bit around Fort Caroline as we talk about its history so you can see what I was seeing. It was a beautiful place. 
the park ranger that greeted me was a man who was very, very friendly and very, very chatty and had lots to tell me about the park. When he learned I was a history writer, he wanted to tell me something very exciting, but we'll come back to that in a moment. If you go and visit this fort, pop into the visitor center. There's a lovely museum with some amazing Tamukuin artifacts there, including this really cool owl like carving that's very very tall it was really really amazing in there so if you want to get more of this history go visit that visitor center and pick up a collector's pin which i did naturally anyway i left the visitor center and made my way over to fort caroline it's along the saint john's river just a few miles east of downtown jacksonville fort caroline in and of itself does not exist anymore. What I am visiting is actually a recreation of Fort Caroline built in 1964, 400 years after the original Fort Caroline was built. It's triangular, mostly made of wood with a few high-rising areas where there are cannons on top. It's not particularly tall and it's not particularly large. It's simple to say the least. It's, it's kind of a measly building, if I'm being honest with you. I'll let me talk about it while I'm there. This is a very interesting document here. It's under kind of an awning, obviously not a historically accurate awning. None of this really is historically accurate. I mean, there's a lot of grass, not a lot of structures. It's, it's really more here to represent the idea of the fort. It's in this triangular shape. It's, it's got the wooden walls, but, and, and there's some cannons, I think recreations of cannons around. So really the concept is to, to honor the history if not represent it perfectly because it's that th this isn't really the place for that i mean if you think about castillo de san marcos and saint augustine which is an obvious comparison and an unfortunate one for this place at least because you know the spanish who killed everybody here would go on to defend castillo de san marcos not far from here but that that place is very much trying to exist as if to say this is what this place was like 500 years ago. This, this, this is more of a representation of the actual structure as if to say, hey, 460 years ago, this was here. How it functioned, you know, we have an idea, but it may not have even been here. It's, it's more of a footprint to say, this is kind of the place where this happened, this is what it looked like, and you can imagine this place under such terrible circumstances as what they dealt with. I mean, there's a lot of benches and a lot of, it, it's, it's not exactly a historically preserved space. Yeah, if you compare it to the Castillo de San Marcos down in St. Augustine, it's it's fairly simple. It's a triangle, it's made mostly of wood, and, and I will reiterate, it's an exhibit. It's, it's not the actual fort, but uh, if this is what the fort looked like, it wasn't exactly a hard-hitting military compound, so to speak. But what's important is its location. It's right along the St. John's River, not far from the ocean. It was beautiful while I was there. Grassy, some hedges surrounding the fort. Lots of people visiting. People visiting with kids, people visiting with dogs. I met a family who had a pair of dogs named Miles and Peanut. They were very friendly. It was nice to, nice to make some friends out there. But I was surprised to see this historical location that I really didn't know much about so filled with people biking hiking bird watching everybody was out in this area getting a view just as i was on this beautiful saturday summer is just on the horizon and i think everybody was kind of feeling it today anyway it is amazing to be able to see fort caroline even if it's not the actual building because we are able to see 
what this place was and, and, and why the French put so much work into coming over here. But it's important to know the people who were trying to establish Fort Caroline and the people who died to defend it. Let's talk about our hero, so to speak, our protagonist for this story, Jean Rabot. Rabot is spelled R-I-B-A-U-L-T. So it's French. I'm pronouncing it as correctly as I possibly can. You get it. Jean Rabot's path to Florida began when he was just a child in the plans set forth by his nation of France. The king at the time was a man named Francis I. Yes, Francis, king of France. Jokes abound. Anyway, Francis I was the king when Jean Rabot was born. To put this time period into context, it was happening at the same time as the Italian Renaissance, that all of that was going on at the same time. The Mona Lisa was painted in 1503, Francis I became king of France in 1515, so it's roughly around the same time period. But Francis I had a vested interest in expanding the colonization of the New World, which was the greatest interest for most European leaders at this time. Knowing there was new land beyond the ocean was far too attractive to the growing European kingdoms. Not to mention that, but other countries were actually kind of already ahead of the curve. England, Spain, and Portugal. Portugal really bothered France. I know 16th century politics can be kind of insane, so, so just go with me here. This is an insane thing that actually is true, but the Catholic Church essentially confirmed that a bunch of land would belong to Portugal as long as they were Christian settlements. So that included parts of Africa and the Indies. It was just adding all this new land to Portugal, and France clearly wanted a part of it. This very much upset Francis I. He, he wanted to... To, to be a part of this land rush, essentially, that was going on. He literally was like, when's it going to be my turn? He put out a statement that, paraphrasing, was like, hey, France wants to be a part of this. France wants to be a part of this colonizing. Because on top of Portugal's expansion, Spain was now casually just popping over the Atlantic Ocean to the quote-unquote New World, gathering gold and silver and making new settlements in Central America and South America and even starting to do some things in North America as well. Everybody around France was getting a share of the pie and France wanted in. So France funded a sailor named Giovanni de Veranzano, an Italian sailor who sailed a French ship over the Atlantic in 1524. Incredibly, his ship landed in what would eventually become New York City, and he named it, pardon me, this is a hard name, it's French, so let's see if I can get it right, I don't speak French, so the name that he gave it was, I think, New Anglume, New Anguleme, a-N-G-O-U-L-E-M-E. -E. So make of that what you will. Anyway, France also established trade with nations in the continent of Asia and sent a famous explorer named Jacques Cartier to what is now present-day Canada, to the region that would eventually be claimed by the French crown, known as Quebec. But the thing about that Italian sailor, Giovanni di Verrazzano, was that he was supposed to make his way to Florida. Juan Ponce de Leon had already made his way to the tropical peninsula that he named La Florida. He landed somewhere along our Atlantic coast in 1513. Ponce died in 1521 after being attacked by the native peoples of our peninsula. The Italian on the French ship, Verrazzano, he would not try to sail to Florida until three years after that, 1524. 
By all accounts of his 1524 trip, he did not make it all the way south. At the very most, he reached somewhere around North Carolina and then made his way up to New York City. He didn't make it all the way south. That distinction would be reserved for Jean Ribot. Jean Ribot was born in 1520. Ponce de Leon died in 1521. Verrazano would attempt and fail to Florida in 1524. Got it? That's the timeline. We're going to jump up now to get to know Ribot as a sailor. He was born in Dieppe. I think that's how you pronounce it. D-I-E-P-P-E. -E. That is the region of France where Normandy sits. You all know Normandy. He joined with the French Navy at a young age and quickly made an enemy of rival navies in the area. England, in particular, found him to be a bit of a nuisance as he raised hell against English footholds and worked to secure French power in Scotland. Did you know that France was once an ally of Scotland? I didn't know that. Anyway, in 1562, Ribot would be given the command that would seal his name in history forever. He was to sail to Florida and stake a claim there for France. His pull to the New World was quite politically motivated. You see, Francis I was not the king by the time Ribot was an adult. Now it was Charles IX. He came to power at the age of 10 in 1560, then officially became king at age 13, and then died at the age of 23 from tuberculosis. I am currently older than that man by a few years. He ruled during a very tenuous time in France's history. There was a big conflict going on between the Catholic Church and Protestants, who were Christians not of the Catholic faith. The Protestants called themselves Huguenots, spelled H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T. It's not totally clear where that term comes from. There was a, a man whose name kind of got parodied and that became Huguenot. But what you need to know is that it actually kind of started as a slur against the French Protestants. They were being completely hated by the Catholic Church, who was active in France at that time. The conflict was favoring the Catholics and the Huguenots were in more and more danger in the nation of France. Ribot was patronized by a general named Gaspard de Coligny a Huguenot in the French government who wanted to ensure his fellow Huguenots, especially rich Huguenots, would have a new home for themselves in the New World. According to the National Park Service, quote, at first the settlement was to be a commercial venture, but religious conflict in France broadened the goals, end quote. So to that end, a trio of ships filled with 150 Huguenots were to make their way to the New World from the nation of France, where they would make a new life for themselves in the Sunshine State. On May 1st, 460 years ago yesterday, they landed. It's kind of a staggering number to imagine, 460. It's, it's amazing to think about how long ago that was, but also how short 460 years ago is in the grand scheme of recorded history. Think about how much life was lived on North America before Europeans even arrived. Think of how much history there is before colonization came in and destroyed it. It's, it's, just, fathom, it's just unfathomable. But here they were. The French, strangers in a strange land. They apparently first landed somewhere near Cape Canaveral-ish, which they called Cape Francois. Then they were at the mouth of the St. John's River, and they claimed the land for France. Jean Ribot built a monument, quote, a stone column bearing the coats of arms of his French king, Charles IX, to claim Florida for France. It still stands in that original spot today, end quote. Now that's not exactly true. There is a column there in the exact same spot, apparently, where the original one was built, but this one is a recreation, built in 1924. I'll tell you about it. Here is actually me spotting this pillar for the first time. It's something else. 
Okay, I'm going up some high steps. Wow. Wow. I am taken aback. This is uh, just stunning. So, bad news. This is not the original pillar. The original pillar is gone. There's a big metal plate on this pillar that reads, erected by the Florida Daughters of the American Revolution, May 1st, 1924, commemorating the first landing of Protestants on American soil. That is a huge statement, probably contested, but that's at least the claim made on this pillar. Around the other side is a, uh, a coat of arms of France, three fleur-de-lis on a shield with the crown up top, and then another plate that reads, this is a replica of the marker placed on or near this spot by Jean Rabot, May 1st, 1562, and taking possession of Florida for France. And then below that is like a cross with, I'm assuming a dove on it. I mean, it is a beautiful pillar, marble, no doubt, standing way taller than my head. 12 or 15 feet, possibly. It's uh, hexagonal. One, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yep. Six-sided pillar just shooting straight in the sky. And the most stunning thing about it is the view. So we can see the St. John's River and we can see houses built along the river right across the way. I mean, these houses that I'm looking at are absolutely beautiful. There's a road out that way that I'm probably gonna be going to momentarily, but the thing that is most compelling to me based on what the National Park Ranger said to me earlier is that right below here, there, there's a big stretch of land that seems to be under construction. There's, there's some cranes and some sort of white sand that looks like that area's under construction. But this is very high up. I mean, I am really elevated. The salt marsh below is very, very, very far below me. I, I can't quite measure it, but it is a considerable distance. We, I'm at a very high altitude for anything, but especially the state of Florida. I mean, I'm looking at tall trees that I am standing really, really far above. So it drops significantly past this point down into a lower area. And then there is this still high, but not as high as where I am, sort of sandy area. Now, there's only one person who said this to me, and it is a park ranger who I spoke to at the visitor center, but he suggested to me that this area might actually be where the fort was, and, and I can understand why. There's salt marsh to the north, wide open river to the west, wide open river, and a curve to the east. So it's, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that, very likely, this area that goes out to the curve of the river is actually where Fort Caroline was. That is at least one theory. Pretty much anywhere from here back to where the recreation, the exhibit of Fort Caroline is, is probably a viable spot for the forts to have been. This whole area is likely, it could be anywhere in this area, but I can see why this spot would be a pretty great area for a fort to be because it's got an entire arc of the river and the salt marsh to the north. So this area that I'm looking at could be the original Fort Caroline location. We may never know. We may never have any idea where it is, especially with the fact that there are so many houses built between this area of the Rabault Monument, of the Rabault Monument, back to the exhibit. There's just dozens of houses over there. So somewhere beneath them could be some further archeological information that tells us where the fort was, but we will probably 
never know. It's easy to speculate where Fort Caroline was, but we know generally that this area is where the Rabot Monument was constructed when Rabot first arrived in 1562. He put a pillar up right here to honor and claim this area for France. But that wasn't the end. Rabot had other ideas, other plans. After apparently staking claim in Florida, he, quote, sailed northward to the Sound of Port Royal, which he named and established Charles Fort, end quote, for the king, Charles, naturally. That was in South Carolina. Charles Fort was to be the new Huguenot settlement. He returned to France in July of that same year to get more supplies from France, but was met with mounting trouble. Huguenots were very much rejected in France at that time, so he couldn't resupply in France. He needed a Protestant nation. He went to the famously Protestant kingdom of England. If the Catholics didn't want him, maybe the English wouldn't mind sparing some extra goods. But the English were not so friendly either. Quote, he subsequently was imprisoned after refusing to assist a colonization project in the New World. End quote. Let's take a moment here. Think about how ridiculous that sequence of events is. Rabot crosses from France to Florida, then to South Carolina, then got more supplies. Then to get more supplies, he pops over to France, where he is met with a resounding no. Then he goes to England, where they go, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll give you supplies, but you have to help us do some colonizing now. When he says, no, thank you, I'm French, they say, okay, now you're in jail. And that's where he goes. He's popped into prison. It's just ridiculous, all the trials this one guy faced as he tried to establish one town. He made the best of his time in prison, however, as he wrote a memoir of his trip to Florida. It has an outstanding title. It's called, quote, Whole and True Discovery of Terra, Florida, end quote. Love it. By some miracle, that original text still exists. The document that I found is from the University of South Florida. I'll include a link. You should read it. It's, it's fascinating. The fact that we have this man's writing from that long ago is, is just astounding. The text is in its original spelling, so some words are, let's say, difficult to interpret. In this account, Rabaud describes landing at the mouth of St. John's and meeting native peoples there, which he called Indians. Rabaud also calls the St. John's River the River of May, since they landed the first day of May. It seems, based on my reading, that Rabaud's interactions with the native peoples, the, the Tamukua, very likely, were peaceful and friendly. But I will say this, those historical accounts are, are often fabricated or, or, uh, over-exaggerated, let's say. Rabot is, of course, the one writing the story. We have no way of knowing what actually transpired at the river when he arrived. We, we don't know the Tamukua perspective. We only know what Rabot wrote down. Colonizers were rarely so generous in their first interactions. Maybe Rabot was? We don't know. Either way, the end of the text from USF reads the following. I'm interpreting based on the text, despite the strange spelling. This is what I think he says. He says, quote, so that, my lord, it is a country full of havens, rivers, and islands of such fruitfulness as cannot with tongue be expressed, and where in short time great and precious commodities might be found. End quote. Rabot apparently saw what everyone saw in Florida. Opportunity. But things were not going well while Rabot sat in prison, musing on the glory of Florida. Back at the town he had established, Charles Fort, chaos was setting in. 
Supplies had dwindled to almost nothing and the native peoples at Charles Fort were not as fond of the French as Rabot had described in his memoir. Charles Fort was proving untenable, so the people decided to abandon the New World and return home to France. Their lack of supplies intensified their situation as, apparently, with a lack of food, some people on the ship, I apologize for this, committed cannibalism in order to stave off starvation. They were saved eventually. I don't know how many survived, but the English brought them in. Rabot's first trip was over, a spectacular failure. Never fear, though, because France had a new hero, René Laudonniere. A Huguenot himself, René was actually Rabot's second-in-command on the first trip to Florida. He also sailed back to France with Rabot later that summer. But while Rabot sat in prison and war broke out between the Catholics and the Huguenots, René took up the task his commander had lost. Now, with double the amount of Huguenots they had on the first trip, René piled 300 people onto three ships and took off for another shot, take two, a second chance at French life in Florida. He would arrive back to the St. John's River. There, he apparently was met with friendly faces. Apparently, a chiefdom of Tamukua people located nearby, the Sataraiwa chiefdom of the Tamukua people, greeted Rene and his Huguenots upon arrival. Again, who knows how true this is? This is, again, just based on what Laudonnaire wrote years later. Reports say that the Sataraiwa built a memorial around that stone column that Rabot had put up. Who knows if that's true, but there's drawings of it that are, are certainly compelling. Either way, now with the Huguenots in a proper spot of land, René built the structure in which I stood, Fort Caroline, or rather, the original version of it before this exhibit was built. The end, however, was nigh. It was 1564, and things were about to get a lot worse. Spain was not happy that the French were in Florida. The Spaniards were not just unhappy because the French were establishing settlements on the peninsula, but also because of Florida's strategic location in the ocean. You see, Spain had established a major foothold in what is now Central and South America. Their ships would be sailing back to Spain frequently, loaded with many important goods, but most crucially, precious metals like silver and gold. The value of this was critical to the Kingdom of Spain, and the English and French could not be trusted. The Spanish ships had already been met by pirates as well as English and French raiders who would board the ships in search of the valuable coin hidden within. The Florida Straits proved an excellent opportunity for raiders to charge Spanish ships and plunder their bounty. The Spanish did not like that, and they'd kill to keep their goods safe. Meanwhile, Fort Caroline was struggling to prosper for the same reasons as before. They didn't have enough supplies. They relied on the Tamukuan citizens nearby, who apparently sold them goods, and they would occasionally buy supplies from ships out in the water. By summer of 1565, René Laudonniere was ready to call it quits yet again. Florida clearly was not the right place for them. As soon as possible, René was prepared to retreat Florida with the Huguenots. France was in chaos, but it had to be better than this, right? Except, Jean Rabot was out of prison, and Admiral Caligny wanted him to return to Florida to join up with Fort Caroline and to expand the Huguenot population on our peninsula. So with seven ships and a couple hundred more Huguenots, Jean Rabot decided to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to join up with René Laudonniere's new establishment. Finally, I'm sure Rabot thought everything was looking up. 
it's hard not to find some dark humor, some irony in this, at least in the moment. It's, it's a tragedy, almost Shakespearean. Imagine René Laudonniere preparing his colonists to pack up on the ships to go, any minute now, home. The right day will come and then we'll go home. And then, what's that coming over the horizon? More ships, more colonists, and who's commanding them but your old boss, Jean Ribot, eager to capitalize on the work that Laudonniere had already done. What a nightmare. Well, the nightmare was about to get worse because when Ribot arrived, he took command and René Laudonniere was ready to go. It's at this moment, in this transition, with new and old Huguenot colonists at Fort Caroline, with René and Jean facing a decision over the future of this establishment, of the future of France in Florida. It is at this moment that Spain, in the form of Pedro Menendez de Aviles, decided to strike. This is from a book that I purchased at Fort Caroline. The book is titled Laudonniere in Fort Caroline, History and Documents by Charles E. Bennett. The book details a lot of what we've been discussing in this episode, but especially the fall of Fort Caroline. Pedro Menendez de Aviles was chosen by King Philip II. Pedro was a Catholic and a Spaniard, so everything about the Huguenots was antithetical to his beliefs. In August of 1565, Menendez arrived at a spot of land that he named St. Augustine because he arrived on the feast day of St. Augustine. Shortly after, he sailed north and discovered Rabot's ships along the water. Menendez demanded surrender, but Rabot's ships disappeared into the St. John's, and Menendez did not pursue. He had revealed his intentions to the French, so Rabot and Laudonniere planned their next step. Clearly, the Spanish were coming for them. Ribot wanted to take the opportunity and charge Menendez. Laudonniere would remain at Caroline and protect it while Ribot took out the Spanish threat. Ribot packed up his men and swept south, only to find himself in the heart of an oncoming storm. Quote, while Ribot waited for a high tide, hurricane winds arrived and swept his helpless ships southward to their destruction. End quote. Ribot disappeared into the waves and for two weeks Menendez waited growing St. Augustine as a city, slowly but surely. But the specter of Fort Caroline still loomed in his mind. He needed to complete the job and remove the French entirely. He was afraid that Ribot wasn't dead and would pop up to attack the defenseless St. Augustine while he took out Fort Caroline, but he pursued the plan anyway. The fort needed to be taken. Now. Luckily for Menendez, they were, quote, guided by a French trader named Francis Jean end quote, so they knew where to go. They arrived to a pond, one that I actually visited right before I left to head home. A great blue heron waded through the water and a tiger swallowtail butterfly flitted by my feet. That pond was where the Spanish camped that night before they attacked Fort Caroline. It had rained intensely, and Laudonnaire's soldiers were unable to keep a proper eye out. The Spaniards used that to their advantage. Quote, Before the sleeping Frenchmen were fully awake, the Spaniards were inside the fortification and using their pikes and swords with bloody effect. End quote. The battle lasted less than an hour. Women and children were killed alongside soldiers and other non-combatant men at the fort. Not everyone at the fort was killed. Some were spared and taken prisoner, but, quote, Probably as many as 143 Frenchmen were killed or hanged at Fort Caroline. End quote. The fort was renamed San Mateo, the Protestant artifacts were destroyed, and the Spanish flag was raised. Fort Caroline was no more. Jean Ribot, however, lived. 
after the destruction of his ships, the survivors actually washed ashore, including Jean Rabot. They were apparently near present-day Daytona, a very far distance from Fort Caroline. Resilient as ever, Rabot led his men north, hoping to defend Fort Caroline. Menendez, however, heard that Rabot had survived. The Spaniard discovered the 100 or so survivors and promised them mercy. They were then bound, and many were immediately run through, killed by the Spanish. Rabot was not amongst that group. He was with yet a different group of French survivors on the coast. But they, too, were discovered by Menendez. The process that Menendez had just done to that first group was repeated here. Dozens of Frenchmen killed by the Spaniards after the Frenchmen had surrendered, having been promised mercy. Rabot was among them. According to the records from the time, Rabot repeated a biblical phrase as his last words. Quote, the psalm that Rabot recited before the dagger was thrust into his body was the 132nd psalm, which begins, Lord, remember David. But Rabot began it, according to an eyewitness, with Lord, remember me. End quote. And that was it. With Rabot dead, Fort Caroline captured, and Laudonnaire fleeing back to France, the French claim to Florida was over. Fort Caroline's structure would eventually burn at the hands of the French, but that is a story for another day. Today, the area where Fort Caroline once stood is a neighborhood. Big, beautiful houses swell up on top of the hillsides looking over the St. John's River. In the distance, you can see a port and other beautiful houses. Somewhere in this area, deep below the surface, is Fort Caroline. We will never know, but it is widely considered to be the first Protestant settlement on this continent, lost forever at the hands of the Spaniards. The thing I think is most interesting is that under this awning, there's a sign that says, commemorating America's French heritage. The, the paragraph at the top says, Fort Caroline National Memorial commemorates the men, women, and children who created the French Huguenot settlement here in 1565. Except for the colony's leaders, little or nothing is known about most of the colonists and what happened to them. What is known comes from brief entries in historic documents and records. And then what's below is a bunch of names, people. It's just names that are mentioned that they're sort of separating and honoring. And there's a lot of them. I mean, Jean Rabot is on here, obviously. Laudonnaire is on here, obviously, but a lot of smaller people are just identified. So a lot of people were affected by this. A lot of people died. Some escaped. But because it's, you know, almost 500 years ago, we don't have a perfect recollection of their lives, their adventures, their, their trips, what happened to them. We just know that many of them died and a few of them escaped and that they were involved in this attempt to bring a French colony to Florida. It is a memorial. It's called Fort Caroline National Memorial. And that's definitely what this sign is all about. I'm reading from Laudonnaire in Fort Caroline, and honestly, I think now would be a pretty good moment to be reverent for the people who were killed here. Because many of them were innocents, not soldiers. And uh, either way, no matter what you stand for, and no matter what, this was a, a brutal thing to have happened, and colonization was so violent for so many native peoples here and violent for the colonizers themselves against one another. The death that came to so many over such a brutal cause, it's horrible. So I'm gonna sit here in the middle of Fort Caroline and, and read from Laudonnaire and Fort Caroline History and Documents by Charles E. Bennett. 
just want to read this paragraph here, a sort of way to honor the people here. I'm alone in the fort. The settlement at Fort Caroline bequeathed many things to present-day Americans. The French colony was the first settlement of men and women within the confines of the United States that emphasized the right of man to worship God in freedom. At St. John's Bluff, one of the first churches in the New World was built by Menendez. It was constructed from the planks which had been hewed from a Huguenot boat. The road which Menendez cleared from St. Augustine to Fort Caroline became the first regularly and continuously used highway in what is now the United States. San Mateo, the Spanish name for Fort Caroline, continued as a fort and a mission, and from it were sent in 1566 the first colonists to Virginia. The combat at Fort Caroline was the first international conflict between white people within territory which became a part of the United States of America. Some of the captives taken at Fort Caroline, Matanzas, and Cape Canaveral remained in Florida to mingle with other colonists and sire children whose descendants are American citizens. The author has heard of two present-day Florida families which trace their descent from the French Huguenots of 1565, and complete records would doubtless reveal a larger number of contemporary Floridians with Huguenot ancestors. So, we don't know it, or at least Charles E. Bennett didn't know it when he wrote this book, but the Huguenots may have failed in their mission, but their ancestors may still be with us today. They always say that history is written by the victors, and I don't think there is any clearer evidence of that than the destruction of the French at the hands of the Spaniards. How many people don't even know that the French were here? How many people only know the Spanish story? The fact that the Matanzas River is named for the massacre of these Frenchmen and their bodies are buried and remembered all throughout this area, all the way down to St. Augustine, they're here. Rabot said it in his last words, Lord, remember me. It's sometimes impossible to imagine the things that these people were thinking of when they were doing such titanically important historical events, when they were living that life. But all I can think of is something that I mentioned earlier. Opportunity. Feels like this season was all about that. People who saw an opportunity and took it. Zora Neale Hurston, Thomas Edison, Harry Sontag, the painter, the hermit artist of the keys, Al Capone. Even the farmers from the Great Freeze of 1895 saw a terrible situation and decided to turn it into an opportunity all across the state. This season wound up being all about that. People who found themselves in a precarious situation, something that they needed to sort out, an opportunity in front of them, and they took it. Whether that opportunity turned to success or failure is not what this season was all about. It was about the fact that they took a chance. And sometimes, just as in the case of Jean Rabot, it ended quite badly. But I take some comfort in Jean Rabot getting his final wish. No matter how poorly it ended, no matter how terribly the attempts at establishing a French foothold in Florida went. We remember him, Jean Rabot, the first Frenchman of Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I am so grateful for this incredible season that I got to create for you, with you, 
it's been an amazing time. I'm so proud of this spring season, and I am so excited for what is on the horizon. The summer season is going to be incredible. I'd like to thank the people of the Tamukuin Ecological and Historic Preserve. It is an amazing place with so much history. I look forward to returning there and telling you more about its fascinating history and more about Fort Caroline because we have just scraped the surface of this story. There is an entire second act to Laudanaire, Fort Caroline, and the French presence in Florida. There was more chaos that unfolded. You'll, you'll just have to believe me for now. Anyway... Thank you to them, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I'm hoping to do an episode in the summer that is all listener-suggested stories. Maybe not full episodes, but things that you want to hear more about that I can tell you more about. So if you've got something you want to hear me talk about or explain further or learn a little bit more about, let me know. Send me an email or reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you are not following the show on Instagram, please be sure to do so. I'm going to be posting there a lot in the month of May in the off season, taking you on some adventures as I prepare for the summer season and posting some old photos and video from my trips over the last couple of months. So be sure to stay tuned there. Think of it as sort of a secondary show to this show. All right. That is it for this season. I am so excited for what is on the horizon. There are some amazing things coming your way very, very, very soon. But until then, I'm going to get some rest and get started on these new stories. We will be back on June 13th, the second Monday of June. And then we will run 12 weeks straight through the middle of summer with some fantastic stories. Actually, you know what? There's going to be a prologue before that. So you're going to hear my voice on June 13th. 6th telling you of some amazing stuff ahead you're gonna love it there's some really exciting things on the horizon I'm, I'm so pumped up for it so i will see you in june enjoy your may hey it's my birthday coming up very soon and i'm gonna enjoy it so have a happy may i will see you in june thank you for listening seriously be good to yourself be good to others and please as always especially as the hotter months approach drink more water. Have a good May. See you in June.